Welcome to Mission Daily. On today's episode, we have Ellen Petrie Lands. Ellen is author of The Happiness Hack, a Stanford instructor and a Silicon Valley veteran with over 35 years experience as an innovator at Apple, Google, an entrepreneur herself, and a coach to dozens of Silicon Valley leaders. Today, Ellen serves as Chief People Officer at Lucid Works, which helps the world's largest organizations make their most valuable data work for their customers and their employees. In this episode, Chad and Ellen discuss the early days at Apple, where Ellen served as the user evangelist, how she formed the first community group online for users in the pre-internet days, and how she has navigated her way through her extensive career in Silicon Valley. It's good to see you again. This is the uh, second interview. You were one of our first guests here. Lucky me. I think when you were here, the table was unfinished. The studio was unfinished and it was in an even worse state of disarray back then. I, it's looking epic to me right now. Thanks. And it's so much fun for me to sit here seeing you <laughs> with that amazing painting behind you. Thank you. And think of you building this vision. I mean, it's been so great to watch it take shape. Thanks so much. Yeah, it's been a bit nerve wracking at times, but it's definitely getting to a place now where uh, not only was it worth it, but it's, you know, the journey becomes the reward and you start to discover things you didn't know possible for yourself and others. So, Chad, I know you well enough to know you never <laughs> wanted it to be easy because no, no, <laughs> that's not what you signed up for. <laughs> that's the wrong type of question, I think, to pose uh, in this universe. <laughs> well, that's, I think, why you and I aligned so well when we first met. <laughs> and let's take it back to that day, right? Because we had corresponded online a little bit. We published your uh, piece on Steve Jobs' bookshelf, I think it was, that you wrote. Yeah, which was a great read still. It's evergreen, so people can go back and check that out. But we met at an office in downtown San Francisco. I'm blanking on the street name. Where was that? Well, I think we met. I can't remember if we met in the office or in the little cafe. So we met in the lobby of that office. I think we walked to a cafe. I think we we walked to a cafe. Yes, something like that. Yeah, Yeah. on 2nd Street. Yes, and that was a couple years ago. So if there's one thing Silicon Valley has taught me, it's to be patient and that the best relationships take years to, you know, build, build that shared history. And uh, it takes time to get to know somebody, right? So interesting to hear you say that because, you know, you and I have a few decades between us. Yes. So be patient. And I'm sort of, when I heard you say be patient, <laughs> I looked at that over a... It's a reminder for myself. <laughs> yeah. But I thought of it for me over a, you know, getting close to 40 year career in Silicon Valley. I mean, that's crazy, right? And then thinking about you, I've now known you since 2016. And so I think about how different be patient is for you than it is for me. And I have to say, I don't think I've, I don't think I've figured out yet how to be patient. So maybe I got to pay more attention to you, uh, Chad. I, I don't know. I, I'm not the, uh, the model for that yet. Um, so let's yeah go back to, because you've, you're a veteran of Silicon Valley and you've spent, I think, 35 years at Apple and Google when we combine, combine those two. Actually, 35 years in the Valley. I was nine years at Apple and about oh, okay. two and a half gotcha. years at Google. That's still, that's a decade of experience at two of the fastest growing technology oh, companies ever, right? right, right. And uh, I'd love to start at the, you know, take us back to 1985. So for me, it was the year I, uh, you know, showed up, um, but you and your team were really, it was all hands on deck for launching the Macintosh, right? It's sort of true. I, I, I love to be really precise about that. Sure, because, let's, yeah, let's drill you know, down. It's so easy to go back in the his, in history and say, this happened and have it sound a little bit different than what it was. And what worries me about that is someone out there listening 
might say, oh my gosh, you know, she only been in her career for this many years and she was already doing this amazing thing, you know, product manager on the Macintosh team. Trust me, listeners, it wasn't like that. <laughs> so let, let me break it down and tell you the truth here. Please do, yeah. I joined Apple in 1981. Now, to put that in perspective, the company had already gone public. So I think it was several months before. I don't. I can't say I fully remember exactly when, but the company was public when I, I uh, joined there. It was still a small company, though. It wasn't really that big. And um, it was a company very much determined, as we all know, to change the world. And this thing called a personal computer was the thing that was doing it. I'm, I'm very lucky. Um, when I grew up in San Jose, California, when it was all just orchard land, to my you know good fortune, I ended up learning to speak fairly good Spanish. Um, and when I first worked for Apple, I was a communications specialist right out of college, helping with a newsletter that was basically designed to explain our products to the intercontinental markets, so largely Latin America, Australia, sort of all of the world except for Europe, basically, and explain them to them how to talk to customers about what these products were. And I didn't know much about computers. However, I had some really great mentors. So I would, I learned that I was really comfortable speaking with engineers. You know, my, my, I come from engineers, so getting a little geeky was really fun for me. And then I also had a really wonderful editor who helped me get pretty good with writing in ways that people could understand. So I had great mentors. And this is significant people who took the time to teach me. I don't think I even appreciated then how helpful they were. I sort of thought it came with the territory. But comparing that to time now and how little time people early in their careers have with, with people who know crafts and know art and who are, you know, by art, I mean the art of engineering, the art of writing, and are willing to spend time. I was a very lucky person. Now, in 1983, I was invited to take that international experience and bring it over to um, the extended Macintosh team, not the core team, but extended. And I became a, a product manager for international accessory products, which meant that I was a product manager and in charge of working with vendors and internal engineers. And, you know, people were like printing manuals and all of this for keyboards, modems, and um, I think also international mouse. Oh, no, I beg your pardon, printers. It's a long time back, dot matrix printers. So in some cases, like with keyboards, it was pretty complicated. Also with modems, because there were different protocols country by country. But for things like, you know, printers, it was mostly being someone who just made sure that the manuals got translated correctly and so forth. So that was my product management. I didn't know what I was doing. But such was the beauty of that time. You know, it's like, as you and I were talking about earlier, Chad, there were no maps for what we were doing. We were following a great compass, you know, a North Star that we believed we were changing the world, but nobody had done what we were doing before. So it didn't matter if you had 20 years of experience or 30 or four or five. If you showed the commitment and the gumption, a word I love, and really were willing to every single day try to put your best foot forward, just take the next best step forward, the opportunities opened up for you. And that's really what happened in 1985, the way you were, the year you arrived on the scene. <laughs> Amazing. That year, a door did open for me. So um, I'd been at Apple for a little bit less than four years. And I was thinking of leaving. Um, Steve was gone. Uh, I, John Scully was a great leader in many ways, but that, uh, that second tier that had come in, they came from much more legacy, much more traditional uh, areas of business. And um, didn't necessarily have that, put that best foot forward, 
even if you've never done it before, you're capable of doing it, you know, vibe that I'd grown up with at Apple. Right. And that aligned with me, that sort of set my baseline for what I thought a workplace should be about. What I would say is that we were in Mapland, and that was a really different feeling. So we were told there is a way we do things and this is it. And that got really frustrating to me. And yet, anytime we have that challenge, that becomes our opportunity. So what happened next is pretty amazing. And I never knew it at the time, but looking back on it, I'm like, I'm kind of in awe. So what happened was, by that point, there were a lot of customers who felt disenfranchised um, with their relationship with Apple. You know, so many school districts around the world and businesses, all sorts of people had bought the Apple II. And in 1985, we were clearly moving away from that platform and focusing development appropriately on the Macintosh. However, there were many people who had been so committed to the Apple II that that was a a challenge for them. And um, they weren't shy about letting Apple know. And back in the day, when you let a company know, you would put a stamp on it and fold it in an envelope and you'd mail it. Your real mailing address on the return. A real mailing address. That's right. Exactly. And I walked into my office on Banley Drive on the first day of my new job that I'd been talked out of leaving Apple to take as Apple's first user evangelist and walked into a desk about the size of the one you and I are sitting on right now, stack after stack after stack of basically complaint mail. And, you know, it wasn't a support job. It was an evangelist job. My job was to figure out how to prevent this going forward, not necessarily to fix it or solve it on that level, you know. And it wasn't something that a support, that all hail support, (laughs) where would we be without it? But it wasn't something support could solve anyway. We clearly had made a strategic decision to move away from from the, the Apple II. And I remember reading these letters, you know, Dear Apple, we bought all of these. We used our entire school budget. Now the Apple II isn't moving forward. What do we do with our kids? You know, mm. the very hard business decision that Apple made at that time. And I remember, Chad, that some of these letters looked a little different than others. They were, uh, you know, you could tell that there had been the perforated thing torn off at the side and they were like dot matrix printed or laser printed. Well, they wouldn't have had the perforation if they were laser printed, I don't think, but dot matrix. And then they had all these funny little numbers on them that I didn't know. And one day I called, well, I sort of did anthropology and I started calling these numbers right. and learning from these people about what their challenges were and what they thought Apple would do to fix it, should do to fix it. And one day I remember calling one number and I loved to think it was to my friend. I always call him out for this. Still a friend, Dave Lavery at, at NASA. Currently, if I'm not mistaken, the father of the Mars rover and the executive director of solar system exploration. Well played. You know, Very cool. the real thing, right? Yeah. Even way back then, we're going back many decades. But I remember him sort of chewing me out on the phone going, what do you mean, what are those numbers up in the corner? That's our BBS. <laughs> well, what's a BBS? And he goes, it's a bulletin board system. How can you have this job when you don't even know what a bulletin board system is? Dave, you're actually a lot nicer than that, but I like to tell a good story. So you know, what do you mean you don't know like the bulletin board system? Sure. And what's that? And he goes, well, that we share information with each other by sending them over the phone lines, modem to modem from computer to computer. And we're sending out software patches and support this and, you know, ways we're solving this and tips for each other. And I said, well, shouldn't Apple do that too? And well, of course, that's why we're talking. And it it turned out that some of these really passionate users had gone to John Scully and said, you need to find a way to connect us. So it wasn't like that was an original idea on my part or anything like that. However, I had to fight the maps to get that node launched. 
Right. And it was not easy. And I still remember one scene, you know, you asked about gender. We'll come back to that yeah. in a minute. I remember one scene from this sort of movie that I play back when I think of this, where I was literally sobbing in my office over something. I get emotional just thinking about it, of something that was so obvious to me was the right thing to do, but I was told I couldn't do. And I remember a manager, sorry to say a female manager, um, which is really weird because there are so many amazing women at Apple. Like it was, it was a gender agnostic place to thrive. But this female manager, I think, had absorbed a few too many of the maps and came in and really chewed me out for crying at work. Whereas I, um, I believe that that showed how much I wanted this thing. And I will not go into details, but um, I worked, started working for her boss very shortly after that. And her boss, who's really a wonderful person, understood that that it was going to take some fight to do things differently, and that he had been at Apple also before, you know, the the, the map people had come in. <laughs> I'm saying map, not Mac. <laughs> and um, he really championed me being able to go forward with this. So we did launch a note and begin sharing information. And people say it was historic because it was the first time that I have heard of, and I can't, I'd love to hear if somebody actually got there first and hasn't had the chance to tell her or his story about this. Yet I do believe we were the first ones to forge an official online, digital, whatever you call it, connection between a company and its user community through the proto-internet, you know, the very early roots of the internet. Which was pretty radical, I think, because at the time, investors and Wall Street and traditional folks like that, the maps that they have says they might say, this isn't a good idea. That's not a wise move to connect people like that. I will tell you, I didn't have to go as far as those authorities to hear that. All I had to do was go to the office next door. And there were people shutting it down all the time, shutting it down. I remember the first time that, um, you know, someone who's now very well known and as sort of, you know, someone who ushered in email, I don't feel it's appropriate to drop his name, but came in to talk about this thing of sending email. Mm-hmm. And um, there were a couple of people who were like, this is the thing, this is going to happen, this is everything. And it completely got shut down the first time this person came in. We rejected the concept of email. I actually think that's the night I was crying, mm-hmm. was when that happened, because I, I saw it as something that we so needed to do. I, I remember sitting with John Scully one time, and it was it was truly an honor. And John was an amazing champion and remained a friend, you know, and really someone who who, who was who really helped me do what I could not have done otherwise. Um, but I remember one time long, long ago, I was sitting in front of a room of, you know, uh, VPs and people like that, talking about, you know, things like one day you will not have to fill out a card and drop it in the mail when you buy a computer. One day you will go online, right, or you'll do it, and that, that the computer will, that the network will actually recognize the computer you're signing in from, and you it will fill out all of this information you. And I remember people sort of crossing their arms and leaning back in the front, you know, row and sort of narrowing their eyes and being going, who are you little non-technical, inexperienced girl to tell us what the future is going to look like? That's never going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great story for a number of reasons. And the first thing I want to focus on is, you know, if you occasionally do cry at work, that's not the goal or anything, but it mm-hmm. should be viewed as something that's a signal as to how much that person cares, right? Don't you think? It's a proxy for that, right? It's, I, yeah. uh, I think a lot of people in our modern culture view emotions as a weakness. Like the second you start showing or telling or displaying your emotions, that's viewed as a negative thing instead of 
you know, maybe that's a decision-making tool. Maybe that, sh- that should be viewed as a decision-making tool. So you know me well enough to know when I hear something like that, I'm going to start talking about the brain. Please. That's what I do. Please do. What we have to understand is that the emotional centers of the brain are, a, they're really a, a, a cognitive modulation system that helps the brain through, you know, the way that these emotional centers or emotional modules are sort of loaded through relevance and through experience. They're going to help the brain select which cognitive model it should fire to make a decision. That's the way emotions work. Emotions are a navigational tool for helping us think through things in a way that favors our survival. As a brain, we must remember left to itself, very important words, is a survival machine. Directed, it can be something other than that because the brain, we don't, what, what the brain thinks survival is is so different in this day and age. Emotions are extremely powerful cognitive tools. Um, what we care about, I think, and you use the word care so appropriately there, but when we care about something enough to get emotionally charged, I think it's because we are detecting on some level, and this is, we're going to get trippy here, but something that is really very much aligned with what our true purpose is and our true intention. I did not recognize at the time that the reason I was getting so emotional was because there's sort of two things come to mind looking back. One of them was because I I get really frustrated when people stay stuck in bias and assumption and blind spot, and as a result, self-limit or limit others. And I was seeing that assumption and blind spot really limiting the potential of something that truly was in, in my understanding of the time, and also I would, would stand up with this now, something that was truly a radical improvement in the way people interacted and lived their lives. And the other thing is, is that if we look at the um, emotions, it's really signaling the things we care most about. I can't go back and say, oh, I really cared about email. But on some really deeply human level, and you're seeing me now, the audience can't see, but you know, I'm kind of moving my hands down more to my, you know, like my my chest and my gut and my heart, like on some human level, not some brain level. We are here to connect. And that is a big part of my pur- purpose is really how do people come together to increase understanding? And I think even then I was getting pretty powerful emotional signals that this was relevant to me. And I think too, when we talk about maps, there are a lot of folks who you know, if you're using a map, it might have been forced on you. It might have been however you got that map, you know, we can't be certain of. But if you're using it and if it's causing you pain and if it's causing the people around you pain and if it's limiting the available options you have, maybe you can look at another's map. But, you know, I think that looking at other people's maps oh, without yeah. without judgment maybe right. is a, a powerful step. And it sounds like one you did because you in that situation were considering that Maybe these maps are correct. Maybe they know something I don't, but you were also pushing back against it, right? You were so right. So there were moments where I felt daunted and I said, you know, maybe they're right. However, I don't know that I looked at other maps then. I think I went to Compass. You know, again, this is just this sense of like being almost driven from within to do the next right thing. And I have mixed emotions as I say that because I think that was a rare experience for me. And I do believe it's harder for people now, especially people earlier in their career, to feel safe taking the risks of, of simply navigating with their own, you know, fuerza, their own life force. The amazing thing is after all of these experiences, I've been, you know, trusted by the company that I work for now to um, really lead everything about people. And one of the most exciting and rewarding parts about that work is 
is really encouraging people to step more fully into the talent they know they have inside. You and I have spoken a lot about things like the heroic journey and things like that. And we all know, you know, the heroic journey begins with this thing, I'm meant for more than this. Now, if we look at everyone in the world with an absolute understanding that all of us are meant for more than this, I mean, look at the picture of the mission up on the wall. They're all, <laughs> all, the, all y'all are meant for more than this. But also that the world outside is just closing that in and saying, no, you don't be careful, play by the rules. You know, you have a good thing going here, don't risk it, all of that. And we're buying in to this sort of collective myth that says, you know, keep it simple, keep it safe. More and more, I feel we're trapped in that. Lucky me, somehow I never drank that Kool-Aid. Why do you think you didn't drink that Kool-Aid, right? Because at many points, I'm sure in your career and where you're at now, it's tempting, right? To take a glass or to take- It's a lot safer. There's a lot less risk. There's a lot less anxiety. There are a lot less dark nights of the soul. Is there anything you can point to or maybe one story? And first I want to say, don't think for a minute there weren't times when I did play a safe game. I'm a parent and had responsibilities to my family. And, you know, there are times when there were different sorts of pressures and different sorts of responsibilities where I had to, you know, sort of optimize for doing what was right for that moment, even if it wasn't exactly on the path that I felt one day I would return to. And so I feel what a privilege I've been able to return to it, you know, even through my work. And by the way, the intention map, you know, that first or first yes. or second article that we shared together, um, that really maps out that sort of way of thinking about it. It's one of the things you first showed me uh, after we met was, yeah, you drew it on the big whiteboard yeah. there. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So and the article, you know, it's still I still share it with people today. It seems to work for people. But I actually had a very unusual experience when I was about six. And I don't know how to explain the experience, but the only way I can think of it is that I, I maybe it was a lucid dream. I don't know what. Yet in that time, I, I feel like I, I saw more of the world than I saw simply walking around in everyday life. I saw things that seemed to have happened in different times, past and future. I saw, I was actually doing an art project of all things, and I was humming, and I sort of lapsed into this dream and it was very enjoyable and very pleasant. And looking back at it, the fact that it didn't freak me out or scare me or something hints to me that maybe I had had experiences like that before. And you know, these days we know much more about the early childhood mind than we did even 10 years ago. It seems that a lot of kids have experiences like this, but because of you know being told they're not real and so forth, they stop believing they were true or they think it's like that weird part of them that they shouldn't talk about. Varieties of re- religious experience is not typically a book that's on most uh, yeah, curriculum. Right? So th- you, there's no context. <laughs> you know, yeah. yeah. And so I, I, for some reason, I never talked to anybody about that, except I remembered it and I remembered really liking it. And I, I think that I don't, I didn't realize until much, much later in my life, like maybe in the past five years, how profound that early childhood experience was and how it gave me a sense that there was something more vast than simply what I saw on a day-to-day level. And the gift that it gave me, I believe, was curiosity. I also, you know, for all of the parents out there, I think one of the gifts of my childhood was I got left alone a lot. I had the opportunity to get bored. You know, what we call getting bored. It never felt like boredom, but I didn't have an activity, so I had time to reflect. And as I've studied the brain over time, these reflective times and these integrative times are really the moments where some of our you know, deepest and most purpose-aligned thoughts come up. So was there an experience? Yeah, I think it was sort of 
having time to reflect and integrate as a child in at least one very unusual experience that showed me more than what I saw day to day. So outside of that experience, as you progressed through Apple and through Google, we've talked about these before, but I'm hoping you can share more stories that help illuminate the history and the ethos of Silicon Valley, because it's a a wonderful, a terrible, yeah. uh, it's a place that embodies the union of opposites, I think, in, in a major yeah. way. And are there any stories that first come to mind that we can uh, start with? Because, you know, you, you shared a couple about that I know I keep in my memory banks to remind myself, okay, don't be like this person, but, you know, do be like mm-hmm. this person. And it's uh, a simple example, but I think it's really good to reflect on the history of others mm-hmm. so you don't mm-hmm. repeat similar mistakes or challenges. So yeah, any, any stories come to mind to start with? So many. In fact, I was I had a really great opportunity to sit quietly for an hour today and write down a, some memories that I've been working to, to, to not lose hold of and to really bring back. Because I do feel that all of these stories and all of these journeys um, weave together in such interesting ways. I think I'm going to call out uh, two that come to mind because they were so influential. One of them is a story of being somewhere, I think, in the Mariani building, which means we would have moved from Banley Drive. And so the timing would have been when I was, was that right? Maybe I was still, a, no, I think I think it would have been hard to say, but it was probably right around 1986. And there was this guy named Bill Campbell who had been a football coach. And he came into the office regularly and got to know people and certainly had people who were in positions where he had to spend real time with them and working with them on leadership and so forth. Yet, wonderful human that he was, he he really got to know everybody. And I remember one time I was sitting there in my cubicle, just sort of pounding away on something. And all of a sudden I hear this voice, Leance, <laughs> what are you doing here? It's 7.30 at night. <laughs> You're supposed to have a life outside of this place. You're going to get your time for you to go home, you know, stuff like this. You know, that story meant so much to me. That means so much to me because a person noticed, a person saw me, a person cared. That's a really profound memory for me because, you know, he was an executive. And I actually think it might have been earlier than 86. I think it might have been when I was in my first job at Apple. He might have called me Petrie because it was Petrie because <laughs> before I was married. And that was pre-trillion dollar coach days, which, uh, yeah, the name of a recent book that's circulating. And that's yeah. you know, Bill's nickname now. Yeah. But I he don't think fantastic. he had the nickname back then. He did have the coach yeah, nickname. Yeah, we called him coach. A clear high performer and everything. But here's what his superpower was, is he would look people in the eyes and see them. And, you know, you've known through my writing and so forth, there's this thing that says, you know, just an, it's, an, it's, a tra- it's an African tradition. When you salute or acknowledge a person, you go, Chad, I see you. And then you would respond, I'm here to be seen. Okay, I'm here, I'm here, to, I'm be here seen. to be seen, right? What is it besides us being seen and here to be seen and seeing each other and having them here to be seen? It's really the ultimate contract we have with each other. And Bill was extraordinary at that. And the other thing that he did is he really cared about people and the impact that our actions caused for people. It's such a funny thing to think about that because it was such a priceless treasure that we held. And yet so many people are so cavalier with that, you know, and yet it, it, it's it's the, what Bill would have said. I don't think he, I think he would agree with what I said. Is we all have that, except that he had the courage to show that in a way. And so that inspires me all the time. Um, I really look at his example as one that I still refer to, and it allows me to be more truthful with myself and the things I care about, even when that's uncomfortable or requires taking a risk. 
And I love when I see people showing up in the workplace with deep humanity because it really changes the way we interact with each other in such meaningful ways. Part of the reason we were able to do so well at Apple is we were made psychologically safe, and he was a huge contributor to that. And people go, what, Steve Jobs around and you were psychologically safe? That's a different interview, but... Uh, yeah, actually, there was, you were emboldened to take risk. You were invited to. It was better to ask uh, forgiveness than permission. And mistakes weren't seen as mistakes. They were seen as steps along the way to a higher path. So as a chief people officer and as someone with the experiences that you've had, how are you thinking about helping CEOs or executive teams create a psychological safe space? It begins with values um, because values really let you name what you believe in in a way that should and really must guide decision making and agreements and i feel um, a tremendous amount of satisfaction when i hear people who are at the crux of a hard situation and coming back and using one of the values to help them sort of tease out how they're going to move forward one of our values i'm very very proud of our values at lucid works uh something that was an honor to work with our ceo uh to put together and you know other people in the company providing input to them but I think the first way that uh, C-level professionals need to uh, create that is to model it. And if you think about the dynamics very often in you know, um, certain workplaces, there's a lot of competition, there isn't radical candor, there isn't true respect for the whole person, there's not authenticity. When I was at Stanford teaching, I did a small research project and it was very, very simple. It said, what do you fake and what do you hide in order to succeed at work? And I asked this question of people who are in sort of executive education type programs, um, the, the continuing studies programs and then other workshops that, that I was involved in. And what people would come back, even very high level people would come back in very emotional ways, you know, sharing. We always anonymized everything, but sharing the things that we faked or hid simply to be, uh, to, to stay in their jobs, to be seen as succeeding in their work, um, not believing in the vision, um, not respecting their coworkers, you know, things that are really painful to deal with. I want to come back to that in a moment, but first I'll say, if we, we can extrapolate that out and say, if that's what the research showed, it's probably pretty present in a lot of teams. And mm -hmm. so the way to begin is how do we create that sort of trust with people in our teams? And I think the, it does take the true leader of the company, which is the CEO, to commit to this. And then you simply have to start living it and being honest when you mess up. So one thing that we talk a lot about is a model from conscious leadership that's called above the line and below the line, emotional you know, sort of range. And so we'll call people out. That sounds below the line. And it means you're acting from a triggered cognitive state where you're responding in, you're reacting rather than responding. We have things that we practice together to become responsive rather than reactive. And then we, so we, we'd be hypocrites if we said we didn't have to work to model that for ourselves before we could ripple it out. How do you ripple it out? You talk about it a lot. You talk about it in interviews when you're hiring people. You talk about it in performance reviews when you're telling people what's going well and where the growth opportunities are. You practice it in the way you open up meetings and make room for people to contribute fully. Um, you have to live it as a practice and a discipline all the time or it goes away. The brain's natural set point is not safety, it's fear. The brain is a survival mechanism, a machine. It's always going to think something's about to go wrong. It's going to want to get triggered rather than to be intentional. So um, you make it a committed practice. Fear is the mind killer. That's uh, 
got to remember that. So outside of your your job and your role at LucidWorks now, I'd be curious to get your take on, uh, this is a broad topic, but let's just, let's just start here. Uh, what's the state of gender relations inside the modern workplace and how do we get to more of a uh, partnership type model that Ray Neisler, did, did I get her, her last name right? Eisler, Perfectly, yes. Uh, she's advocating and a partnership model that's based on history and based on anthropology right. and how we collaborated together in the past that's to get right. to where we're at because our evolutionary history, it was an all out race to survive and evolve as quickly as we could. And there were, weren't there, as far as I know, there wasn't much time for gender squabbles. It was basically <laughs> just like stay alive, right? And yeah. raise the children as best we can and short lives. Like it was a very brutish existence. Um, so I would love to get your take on Maybe we can start with Rain Eisler or we can start in the current to. state. Yeah, I'll start with Van because I love her work so much. She paints a little bit of a different picture, and that is she's gone back and reinterpreted, literally reinterpreted the archaeological record of the worlds, of the ancient societies that flourished best. And she has challenged conventional thinking about things like the burial sites and the tools that were made and the art that was created to say, I love to say that those times were like proto-Burning Man, but... Her, her interpretation, and it's absolutely wonderful, is that at the times when, the, when genders were balanced and held power equally, shared power, we were our most innovative. We were our most generative um, and productive. We invented more than we in, invented at other times. And the time she really looks at is Neolithic uh, Greece and what she calls Old Europe, sort of the area around some of North Africa and then a lot of the Mediterranean areas. Her work, the book, The Chalice and the Blade, which she wrote in 1967, is it's it's a it's a book that shifted and and I would say clarified my focus on what worked and what didn't work in the modern world. Like it's a brilliant achievement. And if we really look at everything that happened prehistorically and what we would need to survive, you know, in some ways we learn. Life in some for some civilizations, and all you real anthropologists out there, you know, give me cut me some slack here, but that um, it wasn't always as brutish as we thought. You know, if you survived certain milestones in early childhood, which was were very high risk, you actually could live a long and flourishing life. And so the the tradition of passing down wisdom to other generations became very important, and very often because. In certain societies, men lived higher risk lives. Very often the wisdom traditions were carried. They were carried by both men and women, often by women. So these studies become really interesting. But her approach is that when certain significant uh, sort of, you know, sort of environmental uh, issues occurred, uh, volcanic eruptions and tsunamis and earthquakes and things like this, it, that marauders actually came in and sort of dominated these partnership societies because they were they had so much wealth innovated in metallurgy and in the way and the tools that they had invented and in the way water moved to you know take care of agriculture and things like this and then this fueled into different things that happened you know in uh, in Greek philosophy and then later in even some of the religious things that happened after that. The lineage moved from being much more balanced to much more partnership and into being much more dominated where certain people in society had more power than others. And the lineage was that most of those people were were, were men. Now, you know, those out you listening to those out there listening to this, 
challenge it and do yourself a favor and even go to the Wikipedia page for the chalice and the blade and read what's postulated because it's kind of eye-opening. It makes people pause and kind of go, huh, interesting. And she is such a brilliant scholar that it's sort of hard to argue with her research. So I believe that that started something that became that led to sort of where we are in the world of business today. I have so many feelings about this that I could talk for days about it. I'll sure. try to keep it succinct. But even when we started writing about management theory, and a lot of people look to the time right around the end of World War II as a time where that really rose. But there was this thing called the great man theory. And it said that every once in a great while, a man was born, a great man who was born and destined to lead. And that when you would put him in his in that place, that he would lead in a way that no one else could lead like. And if you look at the way we work as humans, you know, there might have been, let's say there was a great man and he came from this sort of pedigree or this sort of family or this sort of, you know, community or, or, or region or whatever. His exposure would have been to people like him and go, oh, that guy's like me. He's a great man too. Put that great man in place. And so it went, right? So there are some funny things that happened with who those great men were. And I, I use the word great a little bit loosely and how they led. It was command and control. And we can look at the history of everything up until I think one of the things that was pretty innovative about Silicon Valley is people led in a different way. People who didn't have the traditional qualifications to lead. Look at Hewlett. Look at Packard, right? And by the way, the wives who co-founded that company with them, the secret story in the garage. Completely. I mean, there's always, if you look deep enough into the history of any technological creation, there's a feminizing influence for always. sure, whether it's from the creators directly or indirectly through who they're inspired by. So It's because we do our best when we're in balance. Definitely. Yeah. And, you know, not to go off on a, on a total tangent, oh, but please. the integrated brain, the balanced brain that uses both its systemic and integrative side, as well as its more linear side, which is sort of driving things forward. They, the, these hemispheres work in really different ways, but we have more power when they're balanced. And so it is when we're together as humans. My firm, firm, firm belief. But coming back to the gender questions, I was naive because at first I went to an all-girls high school. When I went to college, I saw that that had favored me in some ways. I, I felt totally comfortable partnering in you know chemistry and labs and things like this with boys in ways that I might not have if I'd been may maybe in a gender mix. I don't know. I It never occurred to me that I had to be any different. Somehow I never got that message, you know, lucky me, which is really weird because I grew up in a pretty traditional, you know, home. But at Apple, nobody had time to think about it because there was just so much to solve and so much to do. And so it never felt like a thing to me at Apple. I don't think even once I said at least not until the much later years, this would be easier for me if I were a guy. It never crossed my mind. And I have to say, over recent years, I, I can't say that's true anymore. Mm. I see a polarizing that is um, makes things harder for both men and women. I see people, very often men, tiptoeing around gender issues because they're so afraid that they're going to be called something, like that they belong to a category that they didn't intentionally you know, sign up for. I also see, I've definitely been the, 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 the subject of bias. May I share a story there? Oh, please, yeah. I was uh, speaking at a conference, and there were about, mm, about 150 people in the room and a very small number of women. I'd say fewer than eight. It was a couple of years ago and a very nerdy conference. And I wore black that day. Don't you think that's a big accomplishment for the nerds? I mean, we have to <laughs> give them some credit here, but it's like it's hard enough for nerds to get 
girls into a room, let alone like, you know, fill the room. So, but, And it was also the, there were a lot of factors in this. Nobody intended it to be that right. way, but it was sort of most of the people in the room were IT directors and they're, you know, that we can look and there's a, definitely a higher concentration definitely. of males. Yeah. Went in, uh, looking forward to my talk. And right before we were on a break and I went to the back of the room and got a glass of water and was sipping my water and was about to set it down when a man caught my eye from across the room with a big friendly smile on his face, walked over to me smiling and held out his water glass and said, excuse me, where should I put my water glass? And I I said to him, "Um, you know, I'm going to set mine right here. And I'm curious, what was it about me that made you think I was a good person to ask? And he blessed that man. He was wonderful. And he goes, oh, I can't believe I did this. He goes, I, he goes, I don't even know what to say anymore. You know, all this. he goes, I'm so sorry. And, you know, and I have to say, in fairness to the guy, all of the people who worked in the hotel were also wearing black, you know, both the men and the women who were white people and so forth. I did have a tag on, so whatever, <laughs> but whatever. And anyway, he was so kind and so nice. And then um, I shook his hand and introduced himself, myself. And then I said, you know, by the way, where are you sitting? He goes, oh, I'm about three rows back, sort of toward the center. Do you want me to save you a seat? And I go, no, no, I have a seat. I'm good. But um, it was fun to sort of smile at him when I got up on stage. (laughs) I think stories like that are so important because otherwise, without seeing that modeled and in a role playing type situation, a lot of people don't see it. You know, what should I say? Because it's awkward when you get those type of comments or when people you know make a comment that's clearly biased against your background, whatever the case is. It's awkward. And yeah, humor is the best tool to kind of like brush it off where... And not reacting because the poor guy, he didn't do anything wrong. We all are running a set of routines about getting things done, solving problems, making decisions, doing things fast. The the great moment was that, first of all, I feel good that I did not get triggered. Definitely. There were times in my life when I would have. You could say you've been justified or whatever. You could always make that argument. But uh, I think it's really cool that you're choosing to... Don't you feel, Chad, that more and more people are grabbing for outrage and outrage? and Uh, It's just really exhausting. And I I think it uh, it clouds seeing another person. It clouds seeing or imagining what they're thinking is. So it's easy to fall into a trap of thinking that everything's malice, right? Just attributing and assuming things are malice. But in actuality, most of the things that we think are malice are typically, uh, you know, habits. They're, they're bad oh, habits. They're habits. Yeah. They're, they're simply habits. And I feel in that moment, I hope he remembers the moment because he was a really nice guy. Yeah. And in that moment, we both learned something, which right. is a big part of, I think, what we're here for. And I feel pretty confident he, he at that moment, he, he realized, like we all realized at different points, we had a blind spot we hadn't seen before. I don't think... I don't think he'll forget that. And so we actually co-created something really well together for both of us that wouldn't have happened if one of us, if we'd escalated the outrage. Definitely. And like the path to escalation is known, right? Like we don't have to, you don't have to work hard for that, right. but you do have to work hard to choose alternative paths. So well said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. The alternative paths, they don't have a lot of you know moments where you can stand up and cheer, mm-hmm. but I think in quiet moments of reflection like this, they're, you know, it's always worthwhile, right? Anytime right. you take the high road rarely going to regret it. Anyway, this gender thing is interesting because I, you know, I love the idea of equality and partnership. And this really interesting thing happened once in a not, it wasn't at my current work, but it was in a setting where I was working with a company in Silicon Valley that was having a lot of attrition with female uh, technical professionals because of the culture. And um, I remember sitting in a meeting and sort of observing a lot of the things that were uh, happening there and jumping to my own conclusions about how 
people were not being able to, like the, the voices weren't shared equally in the room and people were shutting each other down or that thing where people are repeating what others have said and so forth. And I remember there was one man in the room um, and a woman in the room spoke out and she had a really, really good idea about something she wanted to do. And someone came in and sort of echoed that and repeated it. And this man put his hand down on the table pretty firmly and looked at the guy who said that thing. And he goes, let her lead. I'll never forget that. Let her lead. And if we thought that about everybody equally, and we looked at rising young talent, right? Let them lead. Let them do it their way because it's they are the ones who are going to shape the future. Let them learn from the experience and support and be there for them if they need you. Be their advocate. Be their champion. But let them push out of their comfort zone so that becomes more and more of a lifelong practice. And if anything could happen in gender dynamics now, if I could wave a magic wand and make a wish, we would all let each other, we would co-create better leadership together by letting others lead and not being trapped in these roles of what we're supposed to be like or what we're supposed to defy and simply create the sort of environment where people are empowered to do their best work by showing up as equals. You know, at Lucid Works, we talk about radical equality. We really, really want people to feel that we're, we're equals here. We have different roles here, but we all matter and showing that respect to each other and letting, unless there's a reason for me to lead something, let someone else lead. It's their turn to learn how to do that and forge a new trail and create. And so often I find they do it more creatively, more passionately and more relevantly than I would have done if I'd tried to if I tried to do it. I think though that, you know, delegating that and then letting uh, control or letting power to lead in a certain scenario be done by other people. It's just a challenge, right? It's a challenge for everybody to learn to like let go of things right. and learn to delegate and learn to uh, not be afraid to have others be accountable uh, for themselves. But it's a great, it's a great feeling when you can start to do that more and more because what you find is not the fearful scenario that you might have been worrying about, but it's a scenario that you couldn't predict before, right? At least it's going to be something exciting because you can't predict the outcome. Right. Uh, the path to fear, the outcomes are known, but the path to this, at least it's going to surprise you, you know, at the very least. So there's no, I don't really see much of a, a trade-off for, you, you can run small bets with this, right? I love this. And the way that you expressed that was so cool because even speaking about it, you know, it, it shows you're more cognitively engaged when you're solving problems. Trying to, yeah. Yeah. And also it's that it, we're back to maps in a way because when we're de-risking things, we're saying there is a way to do this. And then we're going, and I'm not really sure I know it. What do we really know? There's so little that's actually objectively true. Right. <laughs> it's all about nuance and about being in the moment and being aware enough to navigate things with intention and with the values so forth and so forth. And if for leaders out there, the most important thing I think we can create as we build organizations that will flourish in the future are environments where people feel safe to take risks and safe to be seen and be there to be seen as problem solvers, as contributors, as co-creators. So let's try to make this as actionable as possible. We're going to get into deep waters here, but I think you'll, you're ready for the, uh, the voyage here. What are some of the root challenges? What are some of the root cultural challenges that are causing the gender competitiveness mm. and all, all of the outrage and the things that we're seeing now? There are some obvious ones, right? But I think if we go deeper to whether it's the childhood or formative years of 
uh, people from every gender, I think that's where we might need to, to start looking. Um, are, are there any cultural trends you see that are really preventing all genders from coming together and figuring this thing out? It's a great question. So first of all, I do think there's a lot of conditioning to uh, roles, what we're supposed to be like. And that happens. That's just part of the growing up experience. You know, our, our, there's we co-create a myth of what we're supposed to be like simply by being a society. The thing that really hits, though, and especially since you brought up Rian Eisler's wonderful work, is this idea of, you know, partner versus dominator. And we live, you know, we're several millennia in to having a, a, a dominator tone in the culture where some people are more powerful, more some people are better than others, some people are more supposed to be, you know, bigger, stronger, whatever it is. And that we forget that that's just a story of what it means to be human. It's not the only story. And there are probably many stories that I don't know. However, I do know that's not the only story. And so one of the things that I think contributes to the tension right now is that we're even people who have not traditionally been dominators are playing the dominator role right now. We've all learned what it means to be a dominator. And in fact, that boss who came into my uh, office all those years ago when I was crying and did what she did was playing absolutely playing a dominator game. And so um, I think we have to be really careful of the role models that we think have, that, that, that we have to be really clear on what success means to us. Because if success means simply having the most this or the most that or the biggest, you know, whatever, right? We're going to be competing on that level where we're going to have an evidence-based thing where mine is bigger than yours is, or I have more than this or mine did this faster or whatever. I'm not saying that that stuff has to go away. It's I love competing. It's really thrilling to, I love competing with myself and even, you know, love our company being the best version of itself it can be. And when others are playing by the same rules. Doesn't it help? It does help. Yeah. It's so much fun, actually. Yeah. And I, that brings me right back to Apple. I think that was a thing. It's like knowing that no one had ever done it before made it really easy to compete with ourselves. You're writing ourselves. the rule book. You're creating the maps. Right? There's it's, nobody uh, else to compete with. Living on the frontier is exciting. It, yeah. it is. And we all have that choice to create whatever. Maybe what we're doing isn't on the frontier, but maybe the way we're doing it could be. The how exactly. we do it, yeah, right? Exactly. So um, I guess my thing with gender is the more we can see each other truly as equals and understand that any barrier between ourselves and our perception of another person's equality is largely about our own conditioning and our own blind spot and bias. You know, I, when I was teaching, I was talking about assumptions, blind spots, and biases. We talk about those. And understand that biases, we all have them because they're the brain's shortcuts for making decisions. It allows the brain to be more fuel efficient and not have to spend time pondering, like, well, should I trust this person or not? It's going to operate on the biases. But the more we recognize that that is a, a filter that filters out a fuller set of what is available to us, um, the more we learn to let that filter fall away. And the more psychologically safe we get and the more psychological safety we create, the more people are willing to give us challenges that help us shed our blind spots and biases. I was advocating for something at work the other day in a training with rising managers. and Two managers in the group said, that's a really not a good way to do it. I think that uh, that's sort of an antiquated way and you're going to lose a lot of credibility in the engineering org if you do it that way. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, thank you. You showed me a bias I hadn't even considered existing. You know, it's helpful. But because we have created this safety with each other, we're all champions to make each other better. Now let's apply that to gender. Wouldn't that translate well over all of us working together in partnership? 
Um, and when we're competing, when we're not competing based on those old rules, those old paradigms, that say, I'm going to have the absolute evidence that I won here. But we're more letting the journey be the reward. Mm-hmm. We're more about what is this here to teach me? What is our way with this? I think the more, actually, the more powerful we become as leaders and the more integrative we become as visionaries or innovators or thinkers um, in, in really important ways. And I'd like to, to, to t- finish that thought by saying we have lost so much of the stuff that once brought us together as humans to talk about things like you talk about on the mission, right, and the different expressions of what you're doing. We used to have places where we'd come together for talks or sermons or was this word called these uh, shatakwas, you know, sort of these storytelling sorts of things, elder wisdom, all this stuff. We've lost a lot of that. Mm-hmm. Our businesses, Chad, I think are the best canvas for us to come together as humans and really say, what do we want from this and be intentional about it? And businesses are already doing that, but if they're not doing it intentionally, they may be creating the type of experience where people take whatever PTSD or pain or yeah. frustration or woundedness that, that happens in the workplace. I don't fit in. I don't belong. All of this. They take it home and they reflect that back to the people they love, the com- their families, right? Oh, definitely. And that's just, that's the type of thing that's really painful to watch. And it's painful to watch. I, th- I think a lot of individuals out there are trapped. And I speak from personal experience of having like gone through this in a type of Stockholm syndrome type situation where you know, you grow up and you're often defending the institutions and the people that have been abusers in the past, um, directly, indirectly, verbally, non-verbally, whatever the case is. I think that that is the de facto state of many people, because if you're in business long enough or if you're in the real world long enough and you're you don't have a huge support system, you're bound to develop something like PTSD. I'm like with it, you. That's the I think the de facto state of many leaders, because mm-hmm. coming from the military and you know, we were taught everything, you know, about PTSD in our post briefings. And uh, so after studying that and talking with therapists and talking with uh, other soldiers and talking with other people, you know, the signs and what shocked me most about getting into the business world and technology in Silicon Valley was how many leaders here exhibit clear symptoms of PTSD. And I didn't, I didn't even notice that much amongst the veteran community, which was funny because we're the uh, the stereotype for PTSD. Sadly, we've become the ser- stereotype for PTSD for many people, which isn't the case. Um, but in business, though, there are a lot of folks I feel like are running around with uh, trauma on their sleeves. Oh, yeah. And it's it's evident. It's apparent. It doesn't have to be that way. However, I have no idea what the experience is like being a woman. I try to imagine. But, uh, you know, in being uh, a man and exploring what that means and things like that, I don't think men are comfortable yet talking about trauma with other men to the level that they need to be right um this is something that is like a super taboo where people get uh, afraid they get worried or they i think a lot of male tech executives are worried that if they did get help did get treatment it would make them less effective or mm-hmm. something like that or even shown showed vulnerability of any yeah. sort or their board's going to dox them or right, whatever the case right. is like these are some fears that they they might have mm-hmm. and we have to get to a place where we're as you know from coming from different genders able to talk with each other about what's the experience like being a woman what is that experience like being a man what type of traumas have you faced um because uncomfortable subjects but once we start talking about them or including them in certain conversations where it's I appropriate you. Bravo, um, bravo, thanks bravo. But I, I feel like that's uh it's available to all of it's us available. Isn't it? it's available it's yeah. available today right mm-hmm. there's, there's nothing stopping we can anybody just do listening it. 
from just yeah. doing it or just exploring mm-hmm. it. And uh, it's hard to talk about, but all the conversations that are hard are usually the ones you need to have. You're right. And you know, when, when you, there's, you cued something and earlier, you asked what are some specifics. There's, there's something that um, I, I love doing um, with people and also love encouraging other people to do. And that is to say in conversations with people we interact with, hey, would you do me a favor? Would you tell me one thing that, especially if you are in a, you know, let's say that you're in a hierarchical organization, you might be at a, at a different level than the person is. I would ask people at different levels in the organization, you would help me out a lot if you found one thing that you see that I might be missing and told me how I might do it better. So my experience with that has been sometimes people will come up and, and, and tell me something. When I do it, it's, it's, it's pure gold. It's just a precious, precious, precious gift. I always see something that I was blind to before. However, even being asked, I watch people change. Like Even if they don't come back to me with an answer, they start to notice things a little more. They know they've been seen. They know that their voice and their opinion matters. And if we could all do a little more of that with each other, I think it would be a very generous and helpful thing for us to do. I have a lot of empathy for men right now because there's been so much attention to women's liberation or feminism, the women's movement. It's well-deserved. Bring yeah, it on. Definitely. Bring yeah. it on. Like, I'm all in. However, men, all of us are trapped in roles. And the roles that men are trapped in can be as confining as the roles that women are trapped in. And so I love the idea of getting out of our blind spots regarding those roles. So are there any more tips or strategies you have to help get out of those blind spots? Uh, because- I think a lot of people listening, their biggest objection might be, I can't even start to do that at the company I'm at, which is like, you know, maybe it may be a sign that you should explore other options. But uh, what if doing that or attempting that at the workplace is not currently on the menu for folks where they're at? Well, I, in, you know, I often talk about 5% changes and a 5% change is pretty low risk. And a fact from cognition, from neuroscience is your brain will do more of whatever it's doing right now. And so even find something, I would say, choose something. I would say, trust your gut 5% more. If something feels weird, there's, that's a form of intelligence. We're understanding more and more that there actually is very unique types of information that are actually processed outside of, I mean, the brain processes most, but, well, we don't really know, but there's, there's stuff, I mean, there's so <laughs> sure. much we, we yeah. know nothing about the brain, tip of the iceberg, right? But there is information that's processed in the gut and in the body and in the heart and, you know, that, that is... It is relevant and useful information. So uh, one thing I would say is simply pay 5% more attention to your, your, your gut, your feelings. The other one is, this one's so easy, is slow down. We are so rewarded for the fast brain right now. And the fast brain doesn't always reflect the, um, the more integrative cognition that's available to us, the higher human cognition especially. You know, people talk about, oh, is that mindfulness? And I sort of joke, it's remindfulness because the brain has no incentive to make you mindful, right? It's saving energy and trying to make fast decisions. So you have to be deliberate and constantly remind yourself to slow it down. The other thing that I really, really love recommending to people, and um, it's a neat exercise that someone taught me a few years back. Um, but what you do is you, and, and I, I've recently done this with myself and found a lot of joy in it. In fact, come back to thinking about this quite often, but you imagine a point in your future life where you are satisfied and where you have answered a lot of the big questions. You've found a sense of resonance with your purpose. You feel satisfied with what's brought you there. And you imagine that very vividly, even visualize it. 
And you sort of assign some attributes to that future you, you know, of how old they are, where they are in the world, um, what is who and what is around them, you know, all this. And then you look at that person as sort of your, your kind of your personal Yoda. And you have that person write you a letter to where you are right now. And a really neat prompt for that um, is are these two words. Remember when? So you might say, if you were writing one to yourself, Chad, remember when you were sitting behind the microphone that very, very first time you recorded an interview for the mission? And I knew you before then, so you I did. knew you were you, did. you were working on this deeply, deeply, deeply Trying long. To figure before. it out for a while. Uh, more than that. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Living Thanks. a vision, breathing a vision. Thanks. It was. Yeah. It felt like that. <laughs> you were. It was. It owned you. We talked about that. Yeah. Way back when. It owned you. And so have that future self say, this is what you did. This You held yourself to this standard. You made this decision. Even though there was a setback, here's how you handled it. And then you progress yourself. You sort of like reverse engineer, right? Mm-hmm. You progress yourself toward that. And then let that person be your Yoda. Bring herself or bring himself to your mind, to your heart, to your vision. Occasionally, you know, how would so-and-so, how would it handle it? And you will more and more optimize. And this, by the way, there's some science to this as well, because you're priming your brain for that that direction, that intention. Um, and so you're likely to deselect things that are not relevant to that future state, more likely to deselect. It's sort of the, the latest way of explaining it. Um, but let that person yoda you forward um, as your collaborator, your coach, and kind of reaching out for you sometimes and, and helping you move forward to that next step. That's a really powerful thing for everyone to be. I, I believe that everyone in their heart does do that heroic journey call of you are meant for more than this. And the more we can integrate that more we know we are meant to be with the who we are today, the more we can get them playing on the same team, the more agency and satisfaction we find in our life. And I think too, it naturally leads to wiser, better choices today. If you're even just imagining that you're communicating with your future self, right? Like you don't you, you're just incentivized to become more understanding, more empathetic to just, so just pause for a second. I love it. So that's uh, an excellent, excellent exercise. So I'd be curious to know too, how are you thinking about hiring and building the culture at Lucid mm-hmm. Works? Uh, and do you have any, I'm, I'm sure that there are a lot of open roles and positions, but mm-hmm. if there are any key ones you're looking to fill or you know get team members mm-hmm. for, I'd be curious to know how do you go about that? What's that process like? And wow, how do thanks you think for about asking. It? Definitely. So, um, you know, we, like many fast growth companies, have not uh, in the past paid too much attention to that. Fortunately, we get to pay a lot of attention to it now. Um, we are growing in all ways. Um, we're, we're basically a search company. Um, we do search a little bit differently. It's fueled by AI and machine learning. I feel so lucky, by the way, because this isn't <laughs> even like, thank you. Like, oh, for of course. Me yeah, no, I mean, great. so we were checking it out, full disclosure. We were checking out Lucidworks to, uh, as we build our app and platform, we need to make sure we have the best search tool. So we're, oh, wow. yeah, we're, uh, we're vetting it right now. Cool. So every, anything you need. Oh, awesome. So Thanks. yeah, we're, we're really looking for people who want to join this organization and stay with us for a long time and help us grow. Um, when I think of ways that we want to grow, of course, uh, you know, helping to increasingly build in the Apache solar fusion sort of related world and looking at all of the things that connect that world to the realities that businesses everywhere are facing as they look at data and different types of you know, silos or different types of applications and getting those things to all work really intelligently together. So certainly we're looking for people who have technical expertise. Yet I, I, we're really growing in so many ways across the company. It's it's a very good time for us. And um, 
you talked about culture, and I, I feel like I'm a little bit behind thinking about culture. And the reason I have that luxury, because there's so many things to think about, is that the, the, the team is, is creating it, the culture as we grow. And it's also guided by someone at our company who really pays a lot of attention to that because it is so important. I'm focused very much on values, and our values are a little bit unconventional. So may I share them? Please, yeah. And we, we make sure that we bring these values into interviews and all kinds of conversations. So the first one is honor people. Really begin with respect for the humanity of not only the people we interact with, but the audiences we serve um, who are, of course, touching people's lives in so many ways. So how do we honor people through the work that we do and through the way that we do it? The second one is ask better questions. And that's all about staying curious you know, getting out of those biases and blind spots and really keeping our minds open, um, always challenging ourselves to to think about what we don't know and to be much more at the questions and the answers. The third one is champion customers, something very important, and a lot of people out there are probably listening, whether they know it or not, are customers, so thank you, and I hope we are championing you. Next one, sort of a funny one, um, comes from Zen Buddhism, and it's a little story about a farmer who puts a goose into a bottle he loves the goose very much and feeds it until it grows and grows into this big healthy goose stuck in a bottle. You are given a job to free the goose. And there are only two rules. You can't kill the goose. You can't break the bottle. What are you going to do? Okay, then we go and sit and meditate for four days until we go, ah, we see, you know. So absent four days to think about it, you break the bottle. Nobody said you had to follow the rules. So our CEO, Will, is really great at saying, look, we create our futures here. And we don't have to stay on this same linear trajectory or progression toward this future that looks obvious now. Break the bottle. Think different, right? Find a different way to do this. I love that. So, And then this one's so cool. Commit. And that comes from our open source roots. Just commit. Like be a committer. Contribute. Uh, offer generously of yourself. Keep your word. Show up fully. You know, Trust. Like commit and own it, right? And also when it's hard, don't just wiggle away from it. Like the hard part is what makes you better. Embrace it. Yeah, right? Embrace it. You're going to be somebody new on the other side it, of that. Yeah? Yeah. I like that one too. That would have been a good one. Embrace it. Like own it, man. You yeah. know, or own it person. Pardon me. But commit. And then yeah. this one, the sixth one I got to give to Will. And it's so great. It's enjoy this. You know, we've two things on that. First, we're lucky people. Like any of us who are listening to this podcast right now, we're lucky people. And remember that and be grateful for it and have fun with that, right? That's part of our duty. And then the other thing is I, because if I think about things through the brain, know that when we enjoy things, we actually do better work. So often if people are not enjoying their work, I find a lot of satisfaction in, in talking about that and saying that's a really powerful signal. What, Where does that come from? Is it externally imposed or is it internally imposed? If it's externally, how can we help remove that obstacle? If it's internally imposed, you might be at that point of growth that is always uncomfortable where you're stepping out of an old way and into a new, you know, you talked about PTSD, right? Maybe yeah. you're shedding something that didn't work in the past and afraid if you take a bigger risk, it won't work here too. How can, how can, we've made a safe environment. Safety and comfort are not the same thing. I'm going to give you all the safety that I can possibly try to conjure. It won't be perfect all the time, but I, I promise you I'll be trying Comfort, that one's up to you. How willing are you to be to be uncomfortable when it's time to grow? And so when we're not enjoying it, it could be there's something legitimately happening externally that's not that good. However, internally, it could also be that you're really stepping out of your comfort zone. 
Ellen, what else did I not ask you that I should have asked you? Is there any is there anything that you wish uh, people would ask you or that you wish you had an opportunity to talk yeah, about more? Thanks. Well, I have a question for you. And yeah, there is something. Yeah, Thank you. And that is you interact with a lot of people and you talk to your audience. I bet you get a lot of comments. What's something your audience always wants to know that might be useful to uh, to respond to here? Think about the meta themes that <laughs> run through feedback. It's probably a variant of they want to contribute more to the conversation and direction and uh, certain creative choices uh, because now we're doing fiction and nonfiction podcasts and we're getting to work with uh, A-list Hollywood talent like Alec Baldwin, Jeffrey Wright, and some upcoming women that I can't announce yet because that's how the business works. Um, so they've don't worry, your team outside given, already told me. Oh, great, great. <laughs> there you go. Um, so there's the, uh, the first level of agreements mm-hmm. and you go through details and everything and make sure that the talent's happy. And once they're happy, you know, mm-hmm. you do the project, but which is great to make sure everybody's really excited about the finished script. That's always wise to do beforehand. Because of that, we're starting to get a lot of unique opportunities that our audience wants to contribute more mm-hmm. with or help out or just, mm-hmm. just know about. Be more a part of it. Yeah, definitely. So I think that, um, making, opening up our community to allow the best creators create is something wow. that, I mean, it's long overdue. And so as we build our app, as we build our platform, we're thinking deeply about how do we make sure that the best voices are heard, Me. right? The best ideas are heard because internally we're a culture of, uh, we're a meritocracy for ideas. And I think that everyone on the team would agree with that at this point, because we, you know, we fight for that uh, and we try to embody that however we can and whenever we can. But with that though, you know, I, I think we just, yeah, need to give people more opportunities to get involved and share what's going on behind the scenes and create on, on ramps for people that want to get more involved. Cool. Um, so that's kind of, that's kind of it. Interesting. Well, then I want to say then to all of that audience out there, everyone who's listening, actually, I'm only going to say it to one person and that is you. And that's not you chat across the table. That's <laughs> you. The one with the, I see you there. You have your uh, earbuds in you, you in your car. You in your room, you on the treadmill, you uh, in your office, you maybe out on a walk trying to make sense out of all of this stuff. It's you I'm talking to. And here's what I want to tell you. You are so much more than you are told you are. And you've known it all along. That is the part of you to believe in. Not the other stuff, the noisy stuff that happens outside of you. You are here to make a difference and you are here for a reason keep that alive inside and shine more of that out 5% more little by little by little and you will be doing for the world what you are here to do. Wise words. It's so true. Ellen, this has been a blast. Thanks so much for joining us. Such a treat to be here. Thank you, Chad. Mission Daily and all of our podcasts are created with love by our team at mission.org. We own and operate a network of podcasts and a brand and story studio designed to accelerate learning. Our clients include companies like Salesforce, they're a customer times five, Twilio, and Katera, who work with us because we produce results. To learn more and get our case studies, check out mission.org slash studios. If you're tired of media and news that promotes fear, uncertainty, and doubt, and if you want an antidote to all that chaos, you're at the right place. Subscribe here and to our daily newsletter at mission.org. Each morning, you'll get a newsletter that will help you start your morning and your day off right. 
Hey, listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word, and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.